Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. The movie Noah has just come out. As you know, I've not seen it. Um, I was in Perth last weekend, and a dear friend who I've known from the theater world for many years uh, was talking to me about it, and uh, he had tried to get to see it twice before, had not been able to do it, but as we were discussing the movie, and I don't know, some tell me the content isn't exactly accurate, I don't think that's as important as we want to make it. I think what it does is it brings faith back to the marketplace of ideas and empowers us to tell the story. When you have your coffee conversations with colleagues, friends, business associates, don't get stuck on where the movie gets it wrong, get stuck on where the movie gets it right. And where the movie gets it right is to put Jesus back onto the center stage to speak of the great and many wonders that God does with ordinary men and women just like you. The story behind the story is a simple one. It's a God takes a desert dweller and he makes him a maritime agent. Where God anticipates what is about to happen as a metaphor for you and for me when out of the bowels of the earth waters would explode with such power and force and drive up this ark. From above the glory of God will come down in such water power that will make the the cyclone that's battering with all sensitivity, battering the Queensland coast right now, seem insipid by comparison. The force from below that exploded, the force from above that empowered, that, that, and then at the surface level, the, the, the kind of rumblings and stewing and stirrings of water that just grew, and only one maritime vessel could cope with those three dynamics. And folks, God is creating in us In our story, our God stories, little knowers, little redemption stories that are able to resist, sometimes with fear. I can only imagine the conversations in the kitchen as that little vehicle was being thrown around, that vessel was being tossed and turned as as wave upon wave of water was exploding from underneath. Darkness was unleashed without resistance, without resolve, darkness from below came and thrust its ugly force on this ark. And the power and the presence of God from above coming in glory and wonder and liberty from below. And then the stewing of day after day after day after day after day of being tossed and turned by this flood that was unsustained that just carried on and on and on and on and on. Sometimes my heart breaks for younger Christians because they look at me with tenderness. They say, Chris, I never thought it would be this way. I kind of thought that when I come to Jesus, I'd just be happy. I just just thought I'd love my wife all the time. I I just thought we'd have a happy marriage. And and I thought my bank manager would smile when I walked through the doors. and, And my clients would think, this is the coolest Christian ever. And actually, that's not my story, Chris. That's not my story. And then they describe Noah to me. I'm bounding around on an ocean feeling without anchor, without strength, without stamina, and I'm being tossed and turned. But, sir, you are floating. You have not gone down. You have not surrendered. Grab your Bibles with me, please. And I want you to go with me to Matthew's Gospel. 
It's the first story of the four accounts of Jesus written, I'm told by the clever people, to the Jews. So if you want to understand the narrative of Jesus to the Jewish mind, this is the book you go to. In the sixth chapter of that account, and it reads, we'll pick up in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. Jesus is not making us legalists. He's not saying never pray publicly. He is dealing with the Jewish hypocrisy. He is giving new prayer language. It is a great and glorious invitation to come to the table of the Father. Don't be little legalists that now say, oh, we shouldn't have public prayer meetings. We should all be stuck away in our closets. It's a glorious invitation. It's one I understand, and I'll explain in just a moment. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to the Father who is in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. But when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. As my friend Rory Dyer says, that's the problem. He art in heaven, I art on the earth. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father. It's such an interesting idea when God, you've heard me say, introduced himself in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible. He could have introduced himself in any of a number of ways. And you would have heard me say that he chooses to introduce himself as an artist. He doesn't come as the giver of justice. He doesn't come as the lawgiver. He doesn't come as the all-powerful, almighty one. He doesn't come as the sovereign king. He comes and introduces himself to us as an artist. I was watching The Cosmos, which is a National Geographic show with my boy the other night, and not at all even pretending to be Christian. But I sometimes love that because it opens up my vista to lenses that I don't have otherwise. My own preference and prejudice gets in the way. And I just watched as they took us through the evolution of the cosmos, of wave upon wave of discovery as we've seen it to be. And you cannot but look at all of that and be absolutely mesmerized by the wonder and the majesty of a creative God who took color, he threw it into the sky, and stars emerged. Meryl and I have just been on sabbatical, and a friend gave us a house for two months in Laguna Beach, which is one of the most extraordinary beautiful parts of Southern California. The first night we got there, we were sitting on the patio outside, having our sun, uh, kind of sun, sundowners, having our drinks and snacks, and it was like every millisecond the sky changed as it set in the west uh, behind the islands that kind of front up offshore, and we watched almost every millisecond, every few seconds at least, we could take a picture as the and it was like we sat there looking at each other and said, God is reminding us just how exquisitely beautiful He is. 
No matter how beautiful he paints the sky, if someone paints a sky that beautiful, it means that they are more beautiful than the artistry of their creation. And what's amazing, dear friends, is that we understand, therefore, that God is immense. He is mysterious. He is majestic. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. And most of us love the thought, although we might not know the words. But the problem is, (coughs) if we believe that, period, full stop, we become deists. Deists believe there is a God who authored life. Deists believe there is a creative God. (coughs) But to quote their anthem, Bette Midler, their worship leader, he is watching from a distance. And folks, there are many, many Christians who live as functional atheists. They live as if God is not invested in the intimate detail of their lives. God is watching from a distance. He took the earth. He sculpted it. He artisted it. He potted it. And then he rolled it like a 10-pin ball down the galley. And now he's watching from a distance to see how many of those 10 pins he can actually hit. And there are many Christians who've tasted the wonder and the mystery and the majesty of God, but failed to live any deeper, wondering if ever there is a God who is intimately concerned and preoccupied with the detail of their lives. That's why this verse is so profound. To the Jewish mind, for God to be called Father was somewhere between amazingly intriguing and highly offensive. He is not Father. Who do you think you are that you can talk the one whose name we can't even mention? We leave it vague and mysterious and it's like we don't know how to mention because it's such an austere name. And then this prophet comes called Jesus, the Jewish mind says, and he says, call him father. Now you and I don't think like that, do we? But we live like that. (coughs) Friends of ours have an annual kind of a cheese and wine, end of the year function. And I went to the last, I went to one in December with them and we ended up in the kitchen. I did with, with, with a couple who are kind of newish friends. And I don't know how the conversation went, but I, I remember the moment looking at them, husband and wife, who were elders in a church that I work into. And uh, they, they looked at me and I said something like, so where do you want to go? And the wife looked at me and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, what country, what context would you really like to go to? And her eyes misted up and she got all kind of romantic and, and, and moody in the best sense. She said, oh, Chris, I'd love to go to Italy. She said, I've always been intrigued with Tuscany and the palate, the Italian food and the wines that match the food and the mystery of, of, ancient, of ancient homes and tiny little cobblestones. And she started waxing lyrical about this incredible picture in her mind. And then it was almost as if she pulled herself, reined herself in and said, but I'll never go. And I looked at her, I said, Why not? She said, well, you know, we, we've thought about going a few times, and Greg and I have spoken about going, but, but we can't afford it. We, we, we can't afford it, you know. You know, the kids have got college, university, and, uh, you know, and, and I looked at her with such fatherly tenderness, and I said, do you think God ever wonders about whether you'll go to Italy? And she said, no. I said, have you ever asked him? She said, no. I said, will you ever? She said, Chris, probably not. And I sat there in the kitchen and opened up the wonder of an engaged, intimate God who loves me and is committed to my story 
as I find my story in him. And I could see I was fighting with her internally because she could not rest with the idea that God is any more than watching from a distance. The only time God steps into Project Planet Earth is to pluck someone up, to save them, redeem them, put them into a new story, wash them up in thing we call baptism, give them a few sacraments, a little bit of worship, some bread and wine, and then he steps back watching from a distance like a fisherman on a seashore, and he jumps back in, grabs a sardine or two, jumps back out, throws them on the shore, and disengages one more time. Now Jesus invites us to a feast. He invites us to a feast. He says, now when you do this, he says, our Father. It is a moment of sublime intimacy. <coughs> My daughters are married. I've just been with one in Perth. On Monday, as I land back in LA, my second daughter turns 26. What is it? 26. And this I know. There is still the Our Father component. Dana looked at me the other day, and, and we were talking. I don't know how it came up. We had these great conversations. We're a very highly verbal family. And somehow my death came up. Go figure, probably with inheritance, you know. And she looked at me, she said, Dad, I, I cannot think of you dying. She says, I, I want to die before you die. Now, how many of you know that is a conversation of deep, intimate connectedness between a father and a daughter? And that's the appeal that God draws us into. Our Father, give. It's the freedom it's the authority. It's the boldness. It's not rank arrogance where we storm up to the throne of grace and demand. It's the empowered moment to say, come and sit on my lap. Now, my babe, what is it you want? Dad, give. Give us. Gloriously plural. It's not just about me. Give us this Today, today, whatever today's story is, you are saying I can sit on your lap today and bring to you today the brokenness of my heart, the tenderness of my plea, the deepest longings of my soul. Give us this day our daily bread. A devotion isn't a discipline for Christians that if you don't have it, you have a puncture on the way to work. It's a moment where we engage with Father God and we sit on His lap. Dad, give us this day our daily bread. My dear friend, do you know God is personal? He knows me. He is intimate. He knows me by name. And by name means He knows my story. And he's not at all fussed by your story. Matthew 28, Jesus has gone to the cross. He's gone to the tomb. He's risen from the tomb. They've seen his marks and his hand on his side. He has eaten with them. He has spoken with them. And it said, and some doubted. There were 11 men on the mountain with him. And some doubted. Doubt is the vehicle, it's the highway towards knowledge. If we allow doubt, 
to take its course. It's the journey that brings us into an intimate relationship with God. Sometimes we fear it in a public environment like this. It's so exciting and so fun, and we're all bouncing around, and we're singing, and we're carried along by the sheer exuberance and faith in the moment. We hide our doubt as if a sin is cast into the inner recesses of our heart. No one must know. But the Bible doesn't do that for us. The Bible brings doubt onto center stage because it's the key to revelation. I don't muse in my doubt. I use my doubt to catapult me into faith. God knows me. God knows me by name. God knows me affectionately. In the, in the, in the old campus that we had, oh Lord, look at the time. In the old campus that we had, um, I had an office, there was a school, there was a church, and I used to say to my girls, my boy wasn't born, I said, any time you want, you come, you knock on the door, and I will stop any meeting I'm in, and you come in. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Dad, you will interrupt anything you're doing, because you know me, you know me my name, and you know me with affection. Whenever we read a verse like this, points to a story. In theological terms, it means the law of first mention. Whenever there's a new idea in the scripture, it points to a story. Somewhere we've heard this. Somehow it means something. Give us this day our daily bread. Really? It's a great idea, great principle, but is that really true? Join the dots and see where that's pointing us to. Quickly grab your Bibles, Genesis 22, please. Where does this verse point us to? Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And it's the 22nd chapter. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose, instant obedience. Abraham rose early the next morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, probably his son's mates, like Mitchie's mates, who we hung out with yesterday. He said, I want those two guys to come with my boy. We've got us an assignment to do three days travel away. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. And when Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and I will and worship and come again to you. What a great moment of faith. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife so they went both of them together. And, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, he said, here I am my boy. He said, behold the fire and the wood. It was so barren, it was so moon-esque, there wasn't even wood for a fire. There was nothing to hinder this great moment. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, they went, both of them together. When they got to the place that God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar. Covered him with wood was the pattern, I'm told. And Abraham reached out of his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Great, strong language. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. 
Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord himself will provide. We carry on, and for the sake of time, landing in 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore, etc., etc. How do these stories connect, Chris? When we have a verse like this, Father, give us this day our daily bread. I'm looking through that plumbing because I want to see what's the story behind that that legitimizes this story. This is the story. This is the law of first mention. This is the first time we see what theologians call the compound name of God. In other words, this is a story that points us to a part of the character of God we have not known up until now. God tested Abraham. Dear friends, and I say this with a broken heart, I wish it were not so, but there are parts of the character of God we will only ever experience in times of testing. Please hear me. There is a buoyancy in Christian circles that makes me think I only ever encounter God when things are good, when the feeling is strong, especially for the postmodern ones amongst us. My generation said, I think, therefore I am. The younger generation say, I feel, therefore I am. The problem is we build churches around feeling, and sometimes we don't feel like God is there. And then we wonder where he is, and so is it a surprise that we live in the trauma, particularly of girls who become cutters, who cut themselves, and when there's no more place on their arms, they cut their thighs, because if the, if the mantra of a generation is, I feel, therefore I am, if I don't feel anything, I must hurt myself so that I can feel something, that tells me I am alive. And so God in his wisdom journeys us through the trauma of testing because he knows we will discover things about him in that context that we will never discover by ourselves in times of joy and peace and kindness. And there are things that we will see about ourselves that we'll only ever see in times of testing. God loves us so much. You understand how much he loves you. I led a very successful church in South Africa. 40 of us, school teacher was what I was. 40 of us started this little church. We had fun. I stand here sometimes and I smile inwardly because it feels so familiar. From the age of 24 till, 80, till 38, I led that. It was fun. We grew. We grew to 1,000. Everyone spoke about us. We planted churches. We were the studs. But we were like... Glenridge, go to Glenridge, whoa, pretty cool, huh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was almost as if God looked at me with loving care one day, he said, son, there's so much about me you don't know, and there's so much about you that you don't know, I'm going to take you to America, is he going to what, no, no, I, I, there's so much about me you don't know, I'll take you to the land of Moriah, the land of suffering and pain, where you will build altars in gratitude to who I am. But it will come through tears. When we don't understand that and our theology doesn't allow it, 
we spin around like cars with no tread on our tires. I need to see a pastor. I need to see a pastor. This should not be. No, this should be because God loves you so deeply. You know, forgive me. We only, all pastors only have about 10 stories, and we keep telling them. My daughter turned 13. I wanted to get her a boombox, as it was back in the day. And I wanted to get the biggest one I could because I actually wanted her to say, Daddy, you're so incredible. That's what it was all. It's about me. <laughs> truth, truth be told. So I'm there. I'm at Best Buy's in LA, and I'm on the phone to Merrill, and I'm saying there's just racks of these things. And she says to me, um, and I'm on the phone to Meryl, I said, which one should I get? 99 bucks, 1,000 bucks. I'm leaning down here. See? Why? Because tomorrow morning, I want her to wake up and we open up the gifts and we do the candles and the breakfast and we do the big fussy things because that's my family. I want her to say, oh, Dad, you are so incredible. You are like the coolest dad ever. It's not about her. It's about me. It's about my pride and my ego and, and whatever the case may be. And as I'm there in front of these jolly things, sound-making machines, God says, son, it's not what you can afford. It's what she can afford to receive. I'm like, oh, no, God. And I get like this $150 thing or whatever it was. The next morning, I wrap it all nicely. I do that Merrill wraps nicely. I just kind of Merrill wraps it all nicely. I watch your eyes. Because, because I so dearly want her to say, oh, Dad, you're the coolest dad ever. There's not a hint, not a hint of disappointment. But I'm days, I'm struggling. I'm fighting with God. I wanted to be the coolest dad ever. What am I now? Thanks, Dad. I mean, there's like coolest dad ever. Thanks, Dad. There's a big gap right there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm in Perth where they lead a church two years ago, and I opened the pantry, and it's fairly empty. There's not much there. And as I opened the door to the pantry fiddling with my credit card to go and buy groceries. The Spirit of God just says to me, boombox, and I know instantly what he's talking about. I would not have readied her for her God assignment if I'd bought her the one I wanted to because it would have made me look good. Folks, there are times God tests us so that we can understand that he is our very great reward. The second thing we see in this text, and this was so fun for me, is that God and his boy had an encounter. I mean, Abraham and his boy had a faith moment together. It's a very, very amazing moment. Dads and moms, please don't keep our kids out of faith stories. You know, mom and dad will have the faith, and then you just live off the fruit of the faith. When that was told around the campfire in the years that they would have said to him, Isaac, what was it like? And he said, I, 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 bound, I was lay there bound up. And he said, what did you think? He said, I looked into my, my dad's eyes and I was so confused because there were the tears of profound tenderness and love, but the conviction, the determination, I would not get in the way of God's greater purposes. How many of you know your kids need to know that? That the purposes of God are more important than them. Isaac had to have that moment. As much as he loved me, he would, I would not get in the way of divine obedience. Father, give us this day our daily bread. What is this all about? And I'm shrinking it now. This is all about trust. Do you know trust 
is the single greatest barometer of your and my true spiritual maturity. Not how many verses I remember. Not how many songs I can sing. Not whether I lead a, what, a community group or go outreach or feed the homeless. None of those are the true measuring sticks of my spiritual maturity. It's trust. When Jesus was on his way to be with the Father, he said to his disciples, guys, I have to go. It's better for your sake that I go. And they are freaking out, John 14. And Jesus says this, do not be anxious. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Our life is a story of trust that ever deepens in the wonder and the mystery of it all. In a moment, I want to pray, not long, lengthy prayers, but I felt like God wanted to hone in on three groups, and then I'm going to tell a couple of stories, and we're done. I'm watching the clock. One, those of you young ladies who are single, you've lost faith. At best, you're living in hope right now. Father, give us this day our daily bread. But Dad, I'm a single girl and I want to be married. But you've tired of asking. And the snide comments of family and friends who said, you what? You're 34. You should be married by now. I think, you know what? I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm done. Give us this day our daily bread. Second, I feel like God wants to put faith back into the hearts of some parents who are alienated from your kids. But the promise of the scripture in Malachi is that this gospel, this great and glorious gospel that we sang of, will reconcile fathers and their children. But you've lost trust for that. And then thirdly, financially. Give us this day our daily bread. We went through some hard times as a church some years back. And there were several months that I was not paid. Paid the other staff first. That's just the way it goes. You know that's what you do. They didn't know that I wasn't getting paid. It wasn't their story. It was mine. During that time, my daughter, who was studying at Biola University, her dream was to go to study C.S. Lewis in Oxford. See, as a 12-year-old, she heard about Oxford University, and she didn't tell us. It was her little faith project. She said, one day I'm going to study at Oxford. I'll never forget the sweet breakfast Dane and I had at a little pub outside Oxford. And we spoke together as I was, I was going to take her in and leave her and head back to L.A. And the two of us looked, and she told me the story of, Dad, I don't know if you know, but from the age of 12, I prayed that I would go and study at Oxford. We took her in. We signed her in. She stayed in a house with the other American students. And upon the introductions, we were told that food was not included. And all of us American parents turned and said, no, but we were told it was. They said, I'm sorry, miscommunication. Food is not provided. And I looked at Dana, and she looked at me, and both of us teared up a little bit. I couldn't tell her we had no money. I said, baby, surely the Lord will provide. We hugged together. We kissed. One of my most tender moments was driving away, watching her in my rented car rearview mirror as I left for Heathrow, saying, God, 
This is my daughter's dream. And there's nothing worse than a father who can't provide. Now you are heavenly father. Give us this day our daily bread. On the way to the airport, my cell phone rings and Ryan is leading a little church plant that I work into. Ryan says to me, Chris, I heard you were in the UK. I said, bro, I'm sorry. Came in for three days on my way back to LA, left day in at Oxford. He said, that's why I called. I said, what's that? He said, we as an eldership team just felt God say, we wanted to give Dana 300 pounds a month for the time she is studying at Oxford. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. I put down the phone. I called the Oxford residents. I said, babe, dad here. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Ryan and the elders want to give you 300 pounds. And we wept and we wept and we wept because God is not watching from a distance. God is not cold, disengaged, and eternal. He is intimate, affectionate, and invested. Would you close your eyes with me, please? Leon van Dahl tells the story, and I am landing, of giving his granddaughter a little chocolate, a little candy, a little lolly in a wrapping. I think she was about five years old or something, and he put it in her hand, and her siblings were quite excited for her that she had a chocolate, so they said, can we come and have a bite? And she said, no. And he went across to her, and he said, my dear, can I just open the chocolate for you? Take it out the wrapping. She said, no. And he watched as she learned the tender lesson. When you take hold of something you have and you close your hand and squeeze it tight, you lose it. It was a matter of time before the chocolate melted and leaked out of her hand down her little arm. And when she ultimately opened her hand, there was a wrapping, but without the chocolate. Father, give us this day our daily bread. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 